the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Tuesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and call 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Everything will be hands-free after you hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, nothing going on on Tuesday, so let's get right to the questions. And the first one could take a little while, a little bit of explanation. Uh, So while we await your phone calls and or questions that come in, Here's a question from Jonathan. Pastor Ron, can you explain Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 2? You know, Jonathan, it took me probably three Bible studies to get through chapter 2, and then again in chapter 7. But yeah, I'll I'll, I'll give you sort of the, the, the outline of it. Um, Daniel, of course, is is uh, coming to the rescue. That seems to be what Daniel did. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and the dream troubled him, and uh, none of his uh, uh, fortune tellers could tell the meaning of the dream or interpret the dream. Um, and um, uh, and so Daniel was called in to do it. I'm going to go all the way down to verse 37, because this is where the explanation begins. Um, the, the statue, Daniel sees this huge statue, and the first he sees is a head of gold. And so uh, Daniel is going to tell the future, and he's starting in the present, where he is now, and then he's going to really tell the future history of the world uh, that has been precisely, precisely as predicted. So um, what he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar, is that you are that head of gold. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful dictator um, the world has ever known. Uh, There's not been a potentate, a dictator in the history of the world who had as much power or autonomy as he did. He could change laws when he saw fit to do so. He could change rules on a whim. He was bound by no other laws, and there was no court of of appeals. Whatever Nebuchadnezzar said went. Um, But you see, his empire lasted 66 years. Now, he doesn't really care about that because Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked man, actually made it to heaven. Chapter 4 in the book of Daniel, Jonathan, is his personal testimony. Um, His kingdom was likened to gold because his monarchy um, was what God considered 
uh, the only pure form of government in history, a king of kings. No one should uh, disobey or argue with the king of kings. Now, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a righteous king, but our king of kings is. So this was a picture of God's ideals, uh, ideal form of government. He says in verse 39, um, After you, Neb, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Now, we're going to see this kingdom come into power in chapter 5 of Daniel's book. Um, um, An inferior kingdom defeating Babylon. Why? Because God is sovereign and God's in control. Now, obviously, we know historically this dominating empire would be the Medes and the Persians, uh, represented in this vision by the two arms in verse 32, headed by Cyrus. Uh, He was another man that was called a servant of God by name, hundreds of years before he was born. You can read about that in Isaiah 45. So this is the chest. Medes and the Persians are the chest and arms of silver. Very powerful empire, but inferior to Babylon uh, under Nebuchadnezzar. The Medes and the Persians would reign for 208 years. Um, And uh, after that comes a third kingdom, he says, one of bronze, And that one will rule the entire earth. Now, the third kingdom is Greece under Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, by the way, Jonathan, is one of the most fascinating uh, personal character studies in history, period. Um, He was born in 356 B.C. He died at 33 years of age. 33. And he died depressed. He was drunk, passed out. Um, in a wet street, got pneumonia and died. Um, But his was the first empire that ruled the whole earth. Uh, His empire covered more territory than any of the others in the statue. Um, um, Alexander simply couldn't find enough worlds to conquer, um, and he died, as I said, from complications from pneumonia. Now, the Greek empire continued after his death, in a divided form or an inferior form for 185 years. In verse 40 of Daniel 2, he says, Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Now, the fourth empire is not only the strongest, iron is unbreakable, uh, but it's also the most ruthless, and it lasted the longest, more than 500 years. And the peculiar thing about this, and this is the Roman Empire, it never really ended. It wasn't ever defeated militarily. They just sort of send themselves out of relevance. Um, it just sort of stopped. Um, it's this empire, the Roman Empire, uh, which was ruling when Jesus came the first time. And it will be the revived Roman Empire, which will be ruling the world when the counterfeit Christ, the man that we know as the Antichrist, comes bursting onto the world scene. So that's what it means. Now, go back down to to verse 41, and you see some more interpretation of the dream. Um, Daniel says, Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. It will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Now, clay and iron obviously don't mix. And you don't have to be a a potter to, to understand that. But but here's the idea, and here's what God is saying about this Roman Empire. And he's telling this hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. Um, the statue gives the impression of strength. That's the iron, but it's mingled with weakness. That's represented by the clay. In other words, it has no real substance. Well, likewise, Satan's kingdom appears strong. Boy, in this world that we live in, Satan's kingdom appears really strong, impenetrable. But we know that's not the case. Um, That's the same um, point that's being made in this vision regarding the divided Roman Empire. Um, And then the the end of the vision, Jonathan, 
is um, the fifth and final world kingdom. And of course, that's the one Jesus comes. Verse 44 says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. Now, here's why the toes are significant in the vision. In the days of those kings, what kings? The kings who are ruling and reigning. When this mountain strikes um, the, the, the statue, um, the kings that are ruling then, who appear to be so strong and so ruthless, uh, they're going to be crushed. Um, Jesus' kingdom will be established, and it will come when the kings of the Fourth Empire, that's the revived Roman Empire reigning on the earth. Now, obviously, what that means is Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in judgment. The rapture of the church will happen seven years prior to that. But judgment is coming. And just as all of these historical facts were were predicted and fulfilled precisely, so too will the return of Jesus. I know that we stop thinking about that. Oh, people say Jesus is coming. But remember, he's coming back. And we need to know that. So I hope that makes a sense. It's his his kingdom, Daniel says, will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure itself forever. Now that's what we know for sure. Now think about this, Jonathan. Imagine Nebuchadnezzar, five fifty-ish BC, having the history of the world given him in this kind of detail. Think about that. Now, God is going to give a different version of this vision some 40 years later to Daniel um, in in chapter 7, but it's going to be from God's perspective, and, and this statue that looks magnificent is going to be these ugly, terrible beasts, uh, but that's just the same story. It's just that God is saying... Um, this is this is the way I view these things. So I hope that answers your question without doing an entire Bible study on it. That's one of the real complicated and detailed um, um, dreams or visions given in, in the Old Testament. So Jonathan, I hope that makes sense to you. And um, if you want more information, Jonathan, you can go to our website, calvarysa.com and... Uh, All of my commentaries are written there, and they are absolutely free. Good question. Thank you. Here is a question that comes in from Marcus from our email inbox. Uh, Hello, Pastor Ron. I hope and pray all is well. Thank you, Marcus. I appreciate that. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 14, it reads, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and sat down. Chapter 13, verse 42 states, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles uh, besought, he's using the King James, besought that these words be preached to them on the next Sabbath. My question is this. If the Sabbath day was changed from Saturday to Sunday, uh, and it was Paul and Paul, and why was Paul and the church still honoring the Sabbath when this is in the New Testament after Christ was crucified? Christ also told his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, uh, neither on the Sabbath. That's Matthew twenty four twenty. What scriptures will we find it was changed? Because if it's not in scripture, this tells me that it was never changed. Would you comment on these scriptures? Thank you. I will do that. A couple of things. First, um, um, Marcus, Matthew twenty four twenty is the Olivet Discourse. And that is a a very specific Jewish prediction for the end times. Now, there was a shorter term fulfillment. It would happen in 70 AD, and there would be people who would remember Jesus' words, and they would save their lives by running. But um, the, the idea that on a Sabbath there's no transportation at all in Jerusalem you, you, or, or in Israel, you, you, you know, even today, planes don't fly and trains don't go and buses don't run um, because it's a Sabbath. Um, and, and the idea there is if you see this happen on the Sabbath, you you better figure out a way to get out of there quickly because you're not going to be able to do it. Uh, he also says th- th- that pregnant women won't be able to move quickly enough. 
But but that's a completely different thing. 70 AD, we know there was a partial fulfillment, but there is a long-term fulfillment, and prophecy often has both short-term and long-term fulfillment. And uh, that is going to be completely fulfilled during the Great Tribulation. So that really has nothing to do with the question of the Sabbath. Your question is uh, about Acts chapter 13. Uh, I need you to remember that that the the book of Acts happened over a period of about 30 years. Now, when I say about, nobody knows for sure, but about 30 years up to the time just before Paul began to write uh, nearly all of his epistles. So um, um, Paul's method of operation, his standard procedure, was to go into a new town and because Jesus said the gospel is to go first to the Jews, um, he would go to, to to minister the gospel to Jews. That was always Paul's heart. And he would go to a synagogue or in smaller cities. Uh, Philippi is an example where there was no synagogue established. Um, they would go out to the river and the Jews in the area there would meet. So Paul is simply going out to find his people, the Jews, um, in order to uh, evangelize them. Uh, he's going to bring them the word of life that's fulfilling the Great Commission. So that's what's happening uh, when they came to Antioch. Uh, they went to the synagogue. They sat down because Paul was a rabbi. Uh, they would be given the opportunity to speak, and uh, visiting rabbis be given the opportunity to speak uh, in, in the synagogue. And he would declare that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, and that's what he did. So when um, later in chapter 13, verse 42, uh, the Jews went out of the synagogue. Every time Jesus talked about, I'm sorry, every time Paul talked about Gentiles being included in his ministry of the Gentiles, that's when Jews really got angry with him. And that was really the source of their attempts to kill him repeatedly. I mean, repeatedly. And uh, so he would take the gospel first to the Jews. When they would reject it, he would turn to the Gentiles. That would anger the Jews. But here's what was going on. Um, The Gentiles were listening and being interested. And so the Gentiles would say, well, well, where can we hear more about this? And and, uh, they would come back week after week. That's exactly how the churches in Thessalonica began uh, for a period of three Sabbath days. That's from three to four weeks, just under four full weeks. Um, Paul would meet with them, and they would gather around both Jews and Gentiles, um, and and he would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this isn't meeting on the Sabbath or honoring the Sabbath or worshiping on the Sabbath at all. This was simply... Um, Paul going to Jews first before he went to Gentiles, as was his custom. Relative to verses, when it was changed. um, When Paul writes to the Corinthians um, about giving, he says, when you gather together on the first day of the week. I mean, it's very clear if you go through the book of Acts and then look into the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the epistles of Paul, uh, it becomes clear that that the the New Testament church began immediately um, worshiping on the Sabbath, or, or I mean, not on the original Sabbath, but the new Sabbath, the first day of the week, and they did that, Marcus, in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we don't honor the Sabbath anymore. That's a commitment, a commandment given to Jews. Um, It was the law. And, um, of course, Paul makes a big deal about we're no longer under the law because the the code of the law was canceled uh, because it stood against us. So, um, very early in church history, um, the, the first century church began meeting together to worship on what we would call Sunday, the first day of the week. Good question. Thank you, Marcus. One of the things, and remember, we always have to interpret the Bible. We have to see to whom God is speaking. And when he gives the Ten Commandments, say to the Israelites, that's the first rule of of interpretation. 
Um, who's he talking to? Um, is the commandment uh, for just for them, or does it stretch into perpetuity? Um, the answer is, um, they was, he was talking to the Israelites. They were the ones to whom the law was given. Here is an anonymous question. I know I'm supposed to trust God, but how do I know that, or I'm sorry, but how do I do that when loved ones, my children in parentheses, are breaking my heart? You know, you don't have a choice. If your kids are already breaking your heart, uh, you really don't have a choice. Um, the choice that you have is to trust God because he's the one that's going to go get them. Anonymous, this is a really hard thing. You know, we want to do that which appeases our kids when they're making bad choices. And Jesus says, I- I'm asking you to stand for me. Would you stand with me and for me and let me deal with your children? One of the things that I had learned very early in life, my, my kids uh, weren't believers when I got saved. And um, I realized that God loved them way more than I did. And I can't make anybody make a decision. I still have one child who's not not a born-again believer. And it breaks my heart. He's a great, great man. I love him with all of my heart. We have a great relationship. However, he needs Jesus. And, um, you know, the only thing I can do is let him see the fruit coming from my life. And when we begin to compromise in order to placate our children uh, just because we don't want to be in pain, uh, that's a real, real problem because that demonstrates that we don't trust God. So, Anonymous, how are you supposed to do that when loved ones are breaking your heart? That's when you need to do it the most. I think, and I think very logically, I'm a practical person. Uh, All these parents who are compromising in their walk to appease their children For instance, I know parents who allow their children to have um, um, people they're not married to live in their homes. Um, They they allow their kids to go out and do things. They they allow their children uh, to stay. I'm talking about grown children now. Um, They they allow their kids to stay rent-free without working, playing video games and and whatever else it is that they do. Um, and, And they do it because, well, where else are they going to go? And the answer is, wherever they go, Jesus will be there. And our responsibility, our responsibility is to tell them the truth. So anonymous, stand with the Lord. You got That's when you need to exercise faith the most. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi. You know what? I've got some questions about the Magi today. And... There's a few questions. I'm wondering, was there a scripture in the Old Testament that told them that there would be a star uh, for them to follow? And I'm wondering what scriptures they must have known that Jesus was going to be born. Of course, that's pretty. They're, they're all over in the Old Testament, I think. And mm-hmm. also, where were they living? Did, were, well, well, were they Jews, and were they living in Jerusalem, or where were they living when they saw the star that they had to travel to come and, and see Jesus, Jesus, and where did they wind up going when they took a different route to go home? So <laughs> those, are, yeah. those are all my coffee questions this morning. I'm going to get off the phone and listen on the radio. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Um, you know, the, 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 the Magi, they were, they were, we would call them astronomers uh, today, um, but they were, they were people that were, were looking into the stars for, for direction, um, that they were wise men, they were influential, they were wealthy, uh, they were, 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 we would say they were Arab, uh, probably Iranian, um, um, uh, people from, from uh, modern day Iraq, Babylon, um, in, in the Old Testament. And these are, are, are people that were, were consulted by kings, um, um, and paid very handsomely to do it uh, for direction. So they were just Old Testament fortune tellers. However, some of them had a right heart and were really seeking the Lord. And those are the ones who were given the sign, checking out the stars. They saw the star and they followed it. And make no mistake, you can only go to Jesus as the Lord leads you. And it was God who was drawing them to that sign. And uh, they just followed that star 
to uh, to its uh, destination, uh, and that's where they, of course, brought the gifts to the Lord. Um, um, but it was at that point that that uh, their mission was done. We don't know exactly where they went. Uh, they'll go through Egypt. Um, if you look at a map of the Middle East, uh, all of that is in the same area. And it's um, they're, they're, they just wouldn't go back the same way because they would expect that Herod would be sending people out to ask them the questions. After they saw Jesus and they saw the reason that they were led by that star to be there. And this is just a miracle, a sign provided by God. Uh, this was a miracle that um, they had to follow. And, and that curiosity was put in their hearts. The Bible says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And those wise men, the magi, they were really seekers of God. They wanted to know the truth, and God led them to the truth. And historically, we don't really have any uh, dependable information about them or what happened to them after that. But they would have been from different parts of what we would know now as the world in the Middle East. Good question. Thank you, Cindy. Keep having coffee. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show. We would love your participation. 340-9585 is our main number. Here is a question from Aaron from our mobile app. Pastor Ron, I heard another pastor say the following. Life can be very difficult, very is all caps, very difficult. Perhaps God has counted you faithful to go through whatever trial and trials that have befallen you. Like Job, you will see a double blessing as you emerge in victory in Christ. Is that true? Can we get a double blessing from coming out of a hardship? Is there a particular Job prayer that we need to pray? Thank you, Aaron says. Aaron this kind of theology absolutely drives me crazy. You want to know why we go through trials? We go through trials, many of them, most of them are self-inflicted wounds. We go through trials because God uses them to test our hearts. He uses them to, to, to increase, to grow our faith. And certainly as we go through trials, and we emerge from them victorious. There is always blessing, but it's not this kind of a blessing that this pastor is talking about. Um, and the idea here that, that okay, I'm going to go through this trial because as soon as I'm through the other side, God's going to bless me double. Um, that is absolute prosperity church nonsense. And um, here's how to think about this. Job. And that's the example this pastor used. Like Job, you will see a double blessing. You know, Job had all of his money restored to him, double. Job's family, um, he had twice as many children after his trial than before. But here's what I want everybody to consider. Job lost ten children, people that he loved. He lost them. They died. Do you think having 20 children took away the pain and the misery from losing his original 10? Of course not. This is the silliest thing in the world. And, and what we're doing here is we're tickling people's ears. You know, I, I, one of the reasons I hate the Internet age um, let me let me rephrase. I hate what Christians are doing in the Internet Edge because we're sending out these little tweets and these little um, um, word games we're, 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 because we're, we're trying to give a moment of encouragement or a moment of inspiration. All he had to say um, to, to somebody who's going through trials is, God is with you. you can, you'll make it. You'll survive. 
That's all he had to say. God is doing a work in you so that he can later do a work through you. But the idea that if we persevere in order to get doubly blessed, that is nonsense. It's, it's, it's spiritual pablum. And it's just something that, that I don't know how in good conscience anybody who says they are a man of God given a teaching ministry. This is why James says not many of you should seek to be teachers because you're going to stand a stricter judgment. So, no, there's no double blessing that comes out of hardships. There is blessing that comes out of everything that we do with Jesus. Of course we get blessed, but many of the difficult things that we experience are to get us to that place where God has prepared for us to be. So we, we need to stop sort of naming it and claiming it, and we simply need to hold on to Jesus, hold on to him in the middle of trials. You ask, is there a particular Job prayer that we need to pray? No, because this is nonsense, and Job got that. It just frustrates me no end that people think, well, Job got 20 kids, so he forgot about the other 10. That's not a blessing. That loss was with Job for the rest of his life. He would never get over losing those kids. Now, as we all move on through grief, uh, Job would continue to serve God. In fact, to a greater degree after his trial. But nothing, nothing takes away the pain of the past. It just gets numb, especially when it comes to to losing people. So Aaron, this pastor, is somebody that needs to stay off social media. My goodness, that just absolutely breaks my heart that people would say that. Let's go to Denise from Cibolo on line one. Denise, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I have a question regarding, um, well, here's my question. Can Christians hasten their death by not getting a treatment that they could get for a potentially fatal condition? Or, or is our time set and there's no change and it doesn't matter? Yeah, great question, Denise. Uh, yeah, we can hasten our death. Um uh, you know, um, I, I know people who have, um, in fact, we just had a funeral not too long ago, um, a woman who um, had cancer. Uh, she did not want to treat it with chemo. Um, she had, uh, she believed very strongly that there were things that the Lord uh, wanted uh, her to do. She wanted to see her last child graduate high school. Um, and she didn't. She didn't want to spend the rest of her life sick. Uh, and that's a, a choice that she was free to make. And believe me, this woman loved the Lord with all of her heart. She was a bright, bright light, and um, she just didn't want to spend her last days sick. And that's what happens often with chemo. And uh, believe me, um, until she got really, really sick at the end, which was maybe two months before the, the Lord took her. And nobody knew, nobody, I mean, if you talk to her, see her in church, she didn't want any attention. Nobody would have known that she was suffering. But she was walking with the Lord. She believed very strongly that this was what God wanted her to do and gave her the, the freedom to do. And, and she was faithful. And believe me, she was a faithful light to the very end. Now, on the other side of that, there are people, Denise, that will take any treatments and do anything and even even do uh, exorbitant treatments, um, unproven treatments, um, to, to prolong their life. We also have the freedom to make that choice. So, um, yes, we can shorten our life. Or we can prolong our life. And I'm going to answer your question about whether or not what God knows in a moment. But here's something to consider. We do that now. We, we all of us, we make choices. People that smoke are, are you know, the, the cigarette packs warn them about cancer. Um, but they don't care. They're, they're shortening their lives. Uh, people that are, are um, grossly obese. Uh, they're shortening their lives. They're making decisions. We have a, a woman in our church who I, I honestly didn't believe she would be alive today. 
And when she, again, the Lord spoke to her heart, and she had a procedure done, and she has lost over 200 pounds um, in the last uh, two or three years. And, um, and, and I hugged her and thanked her. I said, you know, you just gave me 20 more years with you. So she decided to, to, to prolong her life and do it in a way that would, would, uh, would help her health. So we, we make those choices every day. Now, here's the, the answer to your question about what God knows. Uh, our days are numbered. That doesn't mean God causes our death. It just means that God knows everything, and he knows the day we're going to die. But he doesn't cause that. It's not like, okay, Ron, here's your date. There's a website. It's a, a death clock, I think it's it's called. And you can go on it and you can give a general description of your life and it and, and your and your health and uh, um, get your birth date and those kind of things. And it's a countdown clock. And it'll tell you um, how many years, days, or years, months, weeks, days, hours, and minutes, even seconds, that you have left to live based on their calculations. And while that's not true, um, the, the, the reality is God knows exactly when we're going to die. He doesn't cause it. And we can make choices that will speed it up. But if we make that choice, God knows we're going to make that choice. And he knows. In other words, God is never surprised Denise. So the, the two answers to that question. One is is if you're in a in a um, terminal illness, um, it's not required that we do everything possible to stay alive. Uh, Paul and I, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, I don't want to stay alive. If, if I can't serve the Lord, um, I don't want to stay alive. And like my friend that we buried not too long ago last month, um, I want all of my days to be as healthy and as strong as it, as they can possibly be. And if there is an illness uh, that the treatment is going to render me helpless or sick beyond my ability to function, then then I don't I don't want to live my days out that way. I'm content to leave my physical condition in the hands of God, and. I repeat, he knows the choices that we're going to make. He knows exactly the day that we're going to die. So here's what I would suggest everybody do. If you get diagnosed with a terminal illness, really, really pray. Pray for healing. God still does that sometimes. But additionally, um, ask God about the treatments. Don't just listen to the doctors. Sometimes our loved ones, you know, they just want to keep us around um, um, for selfish reasons. Um, we always need to really focus on um, our productivity, our fruit that we can bear. One more thought, Denise, on this, and it's just only tangentially related. But when we were under quarantine, um, and so many people um, you know, were locking themselves in their homes, especially people in my age bracket, um, you know, the constant... Um, fear that was being um, um, put out over the media. Um, people would say, well, well I, I can't go to church. I don't want to take that risk. And, you know, they're not out serving God. They're not using the gifts God has given them. And if they would ask me, I'd say, look, is this the way you want to go out? I, I, I'm, I'm right now today. I'm 71 years old. And I'm healthy. Thank the Lord. I have energy. I love doing what I do. Um but, but you know, when the pandemic started just two and a half years ago, uh, all I could think about was, well, well, Lord, do I want to spend the last few years? I mean, I'm in the stretch run of my life. Even optimistically, what have I got, 10 years, 15 years left? Do I want to spend those years afraid and locked up? not in contact with the people of God, not using the gifts that God has given me. I'd rather spend whatever time I have left running full speed after Jesus. And I think, Denise, that's what we all need to, to focus on in situations like that. Thank you. That's a good call. Good question, Denise. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. For your live calls and questions, here is a question from Margie. 
She says, I have a male relative who says he's a Christian, but he also plays poker for a living. Is that possible? Margie, let me tell you a secret, okay? I know Christians who play poker. And I know some of them are really, really servants of God. So, of course, it's okay. Now, if there's other behavior, bad fruit in their lives, well, then, then you can say, well, wait a minute, God says don't do this. But you can't find a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not play poker. Um, before I got saved, I loved playing poker. And I played, uh, I, I was very successful. So I played high-stakes poker games. I didn't do it for a living, but I played high-stakes poker games. And once I got saved, God didn't want me there anymore. He had a different plan for my life, so it just wasn't fun anymore. Um, but there are real Christians who gamble for a living. Um, I, I know a man who, uh, actually a jockey who won the Kentucky Derby uh, years ago. I mean, he's won several of them now, but but uh, he won the Kentucky Derby. And when uh, he won his first one, you know how they have an outrider who with a microphone and say, well, um, um, what do you think? His name was Pat Day, by the way. What do you what do you uh, what are you thinking now that you won your first Kentucky Derby, and out of his mouth came Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that God works all things together for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. So the fact that he is in a business where people gamble doesn't say anything at all about his relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus has people everywhere. He has them in those poker rooms that you'll see on um, um, the World Series of Poker. Um, he has them at racetracks all over the country. Um, he has them in boxing rings and MMA rings. And God has his people everywhere. And we need to be okay. So don't convict him because he plays poker for a living. Um, if his family is content, if he's providing for his family, um, um, you know, if he's good at it and he's he's making a living at it, if he's using his resources um, to enhance the kingdom of God, uh, Margie, take him at his word. Uh, but but playing poker does not disqualify somebody from being a Christian. We who think that might be the case, we need to be just a little bit less on the legalistic side. Here's a question from Andrea. I never know whether to say Andrea or Andrea. She says, how much of my mental health issues should I discuss with people I meet? Uh, Andrea, I don't think you should discuss it at all unless it is germane to the conversation that you're having. Now, here's the thing, and we need to understand this. Whenever we make us the focus of our conversation, our thoughts, um, our conversations with people. Um, we're playing right into the devil's hands. Um, so so there's no need for you to discuss your mental health at all. As a Christian, you ought to be discussing Jesus. And then if you meet somebody, Paul writes that we can comfort others. He actually says, we serve the God of all comfort uh, who comforts us so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Uh, if you do that, if you really learn to focus on Jesus instead of on your mental health issues, then you'll be usable to minister to other people. And God will bring a lot of people in the same situation uh, right into your path. So that's what you do. Don't draw attention to you. Give other people the attention and you'll be amazed at how much the Holy Spirit will overrule, override your mental health issues. Uh, I understand mental health issues are real. I understand that that um, everything from being bipolar to to uh, even more severe mental health issues. But but the minute we start vomiting our history up in in, in front of other people, well, that's when we cease to be a servant, Andrea. So I wouldn't discuss them at all. As you get to know people and doors are opened and they share their life with you and, and you find opportunities to minister to them, then then you're going to have those opportunities. However, um, you know, the idea that I've got this handicap, um, it just it's just something that you really needn't 
do. God will be there with you and for you. And I think a lot of times people with mental health struggles are not being used by the Lord because we're taught in this world to focus on our own needs. And what we need to do is trust those needs with the Lord and and watch what he does with them. So, Andre, I hope that uh, is a source of comfort. But don't draw attention to you. The Holy Spirit will be working through you um, as you're ministering to the needs of others. And as you do that, uh, your needs will sort of pale in comparison. And basically what you'll be saying is, God, I trust you with my mental health. And the same thing would be true with with physical health. You know, Andrea, it's not the same, so I'm not saying my situation is the same as yours. But as as I've said on this program many times, I'm visually impaired. Um, I can no longer see. I can't. I, I, I mean, I'm not blind like I, everything is dark, but uh, I, I don't see anything with clarity. Uh, I don't have any depth perception. Um, and uh, I don't like to draw attention to it at all. Um, um I have to sometimes because people will say, well, I was right there and you you ignored me. I have to say, I'm so sorry. You know, I I have a visual impairment. I didn't see you or I didn't know it was you. Right now, it's embarrassing for me because people will introduce themselves to me. And because my eyes, I can't register their face in my brain because I don't see any clear detail. Um, the, The next time I see him, it could be just a week later. Um, I'll just say, uh, hi, I'm Pastor Ron. And, and they'll say, well, well, I met you last week. I'm so sorry. What's your name? And, and you know, they look at me like I don't care sometimes. And I have to explain to them, no, it's not that I don't care. It's just that I don't see well. And if you hang around enough, then I'll get to know you and I'll be able to see you and, and figure you out well enough. But I don't want people to really um, focus on my problems uh, I want them to know that I'm concerned about their issues, and and that way I can share Jesus with them. So, Andrea, I hope that helps. Rita says, we're inside five minutes now, I think, okay? Rita says, I am a painfully shy person. It keeps getting in the way of real fellowship at church. What should I do? Um, Rita, this is why God gives us the Holy Spirit. Because you need to be able to step outside of you. What God is trying to do is stretch you. Now, here's what I tell everybody, and I have I, I have this a lot. Uh, I think one of the ministries that we have that has more people in it than any other is our usher ministry, in part because of what I tell people. People come up and say, well, I'm new to the church, and I love it here, and the people, and I'm so shy, and I don't, I want to serve, but, but where would you tell a shy person to serve? And I always smile at them and say, I have the perfect place. Oh, really? What? And I tell them the usher ministry. And then you can see their face kind of get white um, because that's they, they know what I'm saying is there you're going to be forced to come out of your shell. You're going to be forced to let God stretch you. And Rita, when we are stretched, that's when the Holy Spirit takes over. And and you, you know you're missing out. Uh, the fellowship... Uh, churches is sweet. It's wonderful. It's absolutely necessary. You know, in Acts chapter 2, they were devoted to the fellowship of believers. Devoted is a very strong word, clinging to, like like Velcro. And um, the fellowship in church is, is a, a wonderful, wonderful experience and life-changing if we let it. So here's what you got to do. you got to say, Lord, you know how shy. You know I'm afraid. I've taken this step of faith, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to do it anyway. And when you do that, Rita, God will show off for you so much. I can't tell you how many of those people that I've sent to the usher ministry. We have a one of my pastors who heads up that ministry and uh, um, I keep bringing people to him. And, uh, you know, those people come back and say, thank you so much, because now they've got new friends. Um, they, they've, they've got people that they, they love speaking with and sharing uh, time with. We have a group that comes on our Friday night uh, group. And uh, this just started with two, two people in the church. And they take people uh, out to, to, to a late dinner snack uh, after Friday night church. And they just sit around in a restaurant that's open, I guess, 24 hours. And they, they just talk. And they're always inviting new people uh, with them. 
Um, and and um, you know that's that's really how God wants to use all of us. So um, get over you. I don't I don't say that with any meanness, but get over you and learn to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. It will change your life, and God will use you to change the lives of others. One more question. I think I got time for this one. It won't take long. Jason says, what role will we have during the millennial reign? Jason, the reason I said this question won't take long is because we don't know. We'll rule and reign with Jesus, but we're not given any indication at all what that's going to be. Now, in my mind, we're all going to be assigned different areas, regional areas, uh, and we're going we're gonna to be Jesus' man or woman um, ruling or reigning in that particular part of the world. But, but, but that's just speculation because we don't really know uh, at all what that's going to be like. So, Jason, all we have to do is remember that anything with Jesus, and we're going to be in our glorified, physical, resurrected bodies, just like Jesus is in his, and and all we know is that anything that we do with Jesus is better than everything that we do without him. So he's got a plan for us. We have to trust in that plan based on the character and nature of Jesus Christ. So, Jason, I hope that helps. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Um, please be in prayer. We've got a lot of people who are out this week. Our school is is on um, um, fall break, um, and uh, we got lots of people gone, and uh, can't wait till they all get back. The kids will be back in school next week. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. God bless you. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.